You're listening to the B&H Photography Podcast. For over 40 years, B&H has been the professional source for photography, video, audio, and more. For your favorite gear, news, and reviews, visit us at bnh.com or download the BH app to your iPhone or Android device. Now here's your host, Alan White. Greetings and welcome to the B&H Photography Podcast. Today we are pleased to be joined by Daniel Corden, who is one of the world's most recognized landscape photographers. In addition to being a past chief editor of Continental Expedition Magazine, his work has been featured in publications such as Discovery and National Geographic. Some of his key clients include Apple, Gazprom Neft, S7 Airlines, and Red Bull. He's also an official Nikon ambassador, and you most likely have seen his photographs as screensavers on Apple laptops. Before we begin our conversation with Daniel, just a little reminder, go to iTunes, subscribe to us, leave us a review, because we really do want to hear what you have to say about our show. Your comments are important, and they do make a difference. Before we begin our conversation with Daniel, let's give you uh, Al's gearhead pick of the week. Something that struck me this week is a Nisi black hole, okay? This is a 4 by 5.65 inch, 20 stop, 100 millimeter neutral density glass filter. So if you have to make water blow f- blur forever, or if you want... <laughs> It's good. Okay, yeah, let's keep that. One. Water to blow forever. If you yeah. want, if you don't want water to look like it's been flowing forever, just pure cream. Or if you want to be able to stare directly into a nuclear blast, um, or more realistically, when no, a twenty you stop stare in nuclear blast. <laughs> <laughs> a good example of when you might want to have a twenty stop neutral density filter is, say, you're shooting cityscapes. And you don't want to have cars and people to be very, very clear. Anything that is moving will just be gone because 20 stops of neutral density is a lot of density and a lot of time. And again, anything that's moving will just disappear. So it's one way of getting people and cars who have streets, even on busy days. So there you have it. On with the interview. That's a, that's a new product from them? That is a new product. And Nisi is the company? Nisi, N-I-S-I. Okay. And it's called the Black Hole. That might be good for this conversation coming up too because, you know, uh, there's a need, or at least in Daniel's work, you know, he does a lot of creamy water flows. And yep, and I'm sure like he's going to be mentioning uh, uh, neutral density as filters that he's been using. So we'll have to mention this. Too. How much is that running for? It'll set you back a cool $199.99. Taint okay. cheap, but it does something very and is special. Is that uh, a round? Is that a, a square? No, it's a square. It square. is a four by five point six five. It's a hundred millimeter filter. Mm-hmm. Cool. There you have it. Gearhead Al. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, on with our interview with Daniel Corden. So, Daniel, welcome to the B and H Photography Podcast. It's terrific to have you as a guest today. It's wonderful. Nice to meet you. Ditto. According to your bio, you've been an outdoor person from the time you've been real, real young. At this point in time, what drives you more? Is it the photography driving you or is it the opportunity to go out and explore nature and be where you want to be? Well, I believe, uh, first of all, I'm an explorer and traveler because it's uh, all started from travel and from exploring. Uh, actually, started for me from um, our travel university club, from mountaineering club. And then continued to photography. Okay, so, yeah. Yeah, first of all, uh, for me, it's uh, exploring. And uh, right now, I prefer to travel to places unknown and uh, to places uh, needed to be explored. Well, actually, our world, it's uh, like mapped everywhere. But uh, in terms of uh, photography, there are still lots of white spaces left and I prefer to focus on these white spaces. So first of all, it's um, uh, the kind of exploration thing for me. And photography, it's uh, like a motivation uh, instrument, like a motivation process for me to travel more, to explore more and to meet amazing people on the way. What was the connection between uh, uh, studying painting when you were younger and photography? Do, do you credit your painting experience for photography? Did you discover photography because of your artistic background? Well, I believe what was uh, given to a kid uh, in his early childhood, it uh, somehow reflects on his whole life. And uh, I spent maybe six or seven years in the painting school. 
Uh, then I was studying physics. So it's uh, kind of something in between uh, technical stuff and uh, something between arts. And I think photography fits uh, this very well. Interesting. Yeah, Interesting. So. Yeah. Good... yeah. Hey, jump back to your, your previous comment. Do you uh, have a list, at least in your head, uh, of places that uh, need to be photographed more or places that you want to go next? Well, uh, I didn't explore Asia too much so far in terms of landscape i've been maybe only to japan as asian country but still i admire asian uh, culture and asian landscapes seen from pictures and it's a good inspiration for me and in the future i think i'll spend lots of time in asia um you go to some places that are pretty remote and i imagine some of them are not terribly explored how do you prepare for that when you get where you're going? Do you have the urge to just start shooting or do you kind of control yourself and check things out and plan things? Well, I think uh, the first uh, task for a photographer is uh, to catch the impression. So first of all, uh, of course, I'm uh, like explorer and uh, the schedule means loss for me, the travel schedule, schedule, expedition schedule. But uh, we always try to catch the moment. But uh, still, it uh, shouldn't cross with our travel schedule. Now, also, uh, uh, something else, you're talking about seeing something that is spectacular. And I imagine you see a lot of things that are truly spectacular in the places that you're going to in the environments. And a lot of your images are also, there's a lot of post-production that goes on in there. When you see these amazing things, are you already, are you already thinking about what you're going to be doing with it after the fact, post-capture, as far as processing? Well, I think it's uh, more about impressions, so uh, I don't see them like it's the final result, but uh, it's uh, a sort of feeling. So when you add the scene, when you're in the landscape, uh, you feel the composition, you feel the light, so you try to realize how the nature will um, uh, change, for example. So if the skies will be clear at night, or there will, be, will there be clouds in the morning, let's say, for sunrise at some places. And the same for compositions, the same for travel planning. It's uh, more about uh, feeling the nature. So I try to feel and touch the nature. Did you ever take photographs that once you got them and you opened up the files after the fact, you said, I don't have to do any post processing here or and obviously going to be a little bit of cleaning up for, for all images but do, do you have pictures that you say no I really don't have to push this one very far I don't have to play I don't have to push it creatively well the camera it's still it's uh, not the ideal instrument so it's obvious like physical limitations of uh, the camera like dynamic range let's say so uh, let's say for some uh, overcast images or for some animal photography uh, most of these images, they look very natural itself, just straight off the camera. Mm -hmm. But for some scenes, like high dynamic range scenes, most of sunrises, sunsets, just it's uh, enough, uh, not enough dynamic range or not enough uh, ISO range, let's say, to capture everything in perfect detail. Our brain, it uh, composes the picture. It's, uh, we see the picture, we feel the picture. Of course, our cameras are very advanced right now and i can't even imagine what will be in the future but uh, still it's uh, mostly about how we feel our brain it uh, just makes the picture like a puzzle it fills but, in a lot uh, of blanks for us that's for sure yeah 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 but straight from camera sometimes just uh, you can just in one shot in most cases you just get uh, overexposed picture hmm underexposed pictures of course you need to make it the way just uh, how you felt the scene so that's the reason of uh, post-processing what do you enjoy doing more is it the capturing of the image itself or is what you can do with it after the fact well i think uh, the most exciting part for me is uh, to be at the moment mm -hmm. so to leave the moment but uh, i don't really like the part after so the part of post-processing well, uh, still, it's a part of uh, the workflow, of course, but uh, it's not so exciting for me. Of course, I love to work with color. I like to work with post-processing, but 
still it's absolutely non-comparable for what I feel taking picture. Mm. That, that's interesting, I think. Yeah, it is. That's, that's kind of what we're trying to get to at, at the heart of this. And uh, let me take that maybe a ne- another step further. Um, when, you're, when you're shooting, or even after you've taken the photo, do you feel an obligation hmm. to the scene that you see? Do you feel that you have a, you know, it's kind of your duty to represent the scene as you saw it? Or, do you, or interpret it? How far are you willing to manipulate a scene? Do you feel kind of a sense of duty to nature, to what you see? Well, it's uh, not uh, the duty at all. So first of all, for me, it's uh, a kind of process I want to uh, just uh, go through to show the people what I felt standing there and taking this picture. Mm. So it's uh, rather about my emotions or my feeling of landscape. Mm. So it's like a story, like a hoku, maybe. So there are some words you need to get together in a sentence. That's interesting. Well, that's, that's a great. It. That's an interesting metaphor. Yeah. So, yeah. kind of a transfer, a transfer of the emotions from what you're seeing to the viewer, and whatever tool necessary, you're okay using it. Well, I think uh, not every tool mm-hmm. here is useful. So we approached uh, uh, the main question. Yeah, the main question about the border between uh, what is allowed in photography and what's not allowed. Mm-hmm. And so here I think it's like in sports. So it's more about it's, uh, sports and photography. Yeah. Okay. So let me hear. I'm curious, especially after uh, <laughs> what's we, what we've been hearing in the news about. Uh, what we so, want to know is, are you on steroids when you're out there taking pictures? <laughs> 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 so I think it's uh, more about uh, some uh, I don't know how to explain it, but maybe some guidelines in photography or maybe about general rules. The border, for me, when we cross the border, we come to some uh, manipulations, like uh, let's say we can use another sky or we can just Photoshop Milky Way in some picture. So for me, it's not acceptable at all. Okay. Where do you draw that line between an image that's manipulated and one that's merely edited? Well, I compose images, but uh, only limited by HDR. And what I am uh, intend to say that I'm not manipulating the like earth elements. So I'm not uh, creating a composite image. The line is uh, where you start to just combine, uh, like let's say, different uh, elements of earth. So you combine some sky from another image to a particular image, or let's say you add some mountains or some objects, so something uh, significant. So if mm-hmm. you add some major objects to one to another. So it's a kind of manipulation, but I'm not against it. So uh, I know lots of artists that uh, combine the images and they create like amazing stuff. It's mm-hmm. very inspiring stuff. But uh, it's not about nature photography. So when you see the image, uh, you feel something different. So you feel that uh, it's like the other reality. So it's not Earth. So it's not our planet. Hmm. It's uh, it's become like an illustration more than anything else. Now it's a photo illustration. It's not no longer just a photograph. I think so uh, because uh, it's about uh, uh, first of all, it's about honesty of photographer. But uh, still, the main uh, the main fact for me that um, it's uh, these are things that needed to be clearly distinguished, and uh, mm-hmm. you feel absolutely different about uh, some arts, for example, and about photography. Right. So it's it's like uh, two different wor- worlds. Yeah. In most cases, when uh, someone creates. Um, uh, like composite very close to nature, let's say, just manipulate the sky, uh, the image will look quite uh, artificial. If someone is talented enough to create an image that is manipulated but doesn't look manipulated, does that uh, fall within the boundaries of what is acceptable for you? Personally, I prefer to uh, fight for these images. So right. for me, it's, uh, like a big challenge to 
capture beautiful conditions of nature and i absolutely don't don't mind if someone manipulate images just uh, i prefer that uh, all photographers like the community it will be honest to each other i see can we can we then kind of walk us through a little bit of your workflow and i guess when i i want to start with uh when you're out in the field and let's say for example you you you've come across a scene that you know you want to photograph but the light is not right uh do you give yourself the time or another day to come back? Do you plan it to get the light that you know that you want? If I'm exploring some places like Greenland or Antarctica, of course, I don't know any of these places. And sometimes I just can find some amazing location in the daytime and I cannot return there. So I'm planning uh, to return there next trip or uh, just next years. But uh, for many places like, let's say, Tuscany or Lafoten Islands, uh, the places are returned basically each year. Mm-hmm. So I know every location, like every stone, maybe uh, <laughs> everyone very well there at these places. And uh, I plan some shots there. So you're absolutely right. And sometimes I'd like to see some northern lights. I'd like to see some eyes in particular locations. I really plan and imagine these shots and... Uh, just uh, every time I return, I try to just make them alive. Mm. <laughs> so and, and, good. and some of the pleasure, do you find the pleasure in, in, in what we call the, in the chase, you know, in, in finding the image or maybe not finding the image and knowing that you'll go back the next time and get it? Or, uh, or are you someone who gets very frustrated when you can't get that photo? Well, I think, uh, in photography, uh, the most exciting process for me is, uh, uh, to hunt for a shot. So, mm-hmm. and it's, uh, it's very, uh, very process that requires lots of patience from photographers. So it's like Dao, the way <laughs> so I admire the way. And do you so need, most photog- I'm sorry, do you need mm-hmm. to be alone or do you prefer to be alone when you're doing that? Yeah. I was going to ask you that too. If you, if you go out by yourself, cause, uh, and the reason why I was going to ask is that in many of your photographs, you have a person in it, which is very effective. It gives that human uh, aspect to it and also a sense of scale. So uh, that's what I was curious about too. Do you, tra- do you travel with a, a prop person? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I always carry it in my luggage. <laughs> uh, well, to be serious, um, I usually travel with groups. Mm-hmm. So all of uh, my expeditions, my journeys, they made us tours. And uh, it's not all about uh, the business, the money. Of course, it's uh, first of all, it's uh, about uh, the travel itself. Because uh, sometimes I've just got angry on my groups because sometimes they can be very annoying, like 12 people <laughs> asking uh, still same the same question. questions yeah. <laughs> every day. So, and uh, then I decide just uh, next time I will go alone somewhere. Uh-huh. And maybe on the second or the third day, I realized that I miss my groups. So I really miss uh, some company, some people around. It's a love-hate relationship. (laughs) Oh, yeah, because uh, it's uh, also uh, concerned, uh, uh, linked with uh, the previous question. So the question about hunting for uh, photos. Because let's say it's uh, the mentioned uh, Lofoten Islands or Iceland, uh, we can spend, like, let's say, a week under the rain. So it's some locations it may be raining for days. And that's when you find out how good a photographer you are. When the sun's not shining and the skies are not blue and things are going against you, that's when you find out how good you really are. That's that's where the challenge is. That's my take on it. Absolutely right. But when you're stuck in the uh, farmer's house for five days, <laughs> it's no desert. <laughs> how, how did you come to doing uh, to going out with groups? Uh, were you approached or was this an idea that you had saying, I like traveling, I might as well make some money on this whole thing and take people with me? Um, how, how did it all come about? Well, it's uh, also about uh, the previous scene with the farmer. Uh, because uh, when you're stuck somewhere, for example, you start feeling that uh, you need to do, to do something useful in the life. 
And for me, this useful uh, is to teach people also. Aha. So it's double hit. So if uh, the weather doesn't permit to go somewhere or just it's raining heavily, let's say, we can uh, just discuss uh, photography, we can learn from each other, so have conversations. And it's all, always a, a great pleasure to have conversations with photography people. So that's why I admire the stories, these workshops, because uh, usually I speak with uh, amazing people. And uh, not only I'm transferring some knowledge to them, but they also educate me. Oh, yeah, it's a give and take. How, how, how often do you do these trips? How many times a year? Well, sometimes I think I'm just leaving this. So. Yeah, it looks like <laughs> it. <laughs> yeah. But uh, if we calculate precisely, maybe seven to eight months per year. Wow, okay. So the full time. I'm sorry to jump back a bit, but um, uh, we interrupted you before you kind of got to some of your uh, your post process yes, software. Yes, can you yes. uh, can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, and sure. Just the workflow uh, in general. Mm -hmm. So, of course, the workflow starts at fields when uh, where I take pictures, and uh, some pictures are made with filters, some not. Mm -hmm. So that's essential. Yes, and um, then it continues in uh, processing. And uh, formal processing, it involves uh, some software like uh, Photoshop, Lightroom, and uh, some applications for panorama stitching, like uh, uh, Patagui. It's uh, Panorama Tools graphical user interface for panorama stitching. It's my favorite software. Uh, so the, uh, precise what, if we just go ahead one second, what kind of filters do you use? If you're using filters, is it, are you talking about neutral grads or any of that sort or color grads? What kind of filters would yeah, you be yeah. doing? So, uh, it's, uh, natural density graduated filters. It's natural density filters themselves. Um, so in some cases I use these filters, uh, to be correct, I, uh, use them mainly to, Control the shutter speed. Aha. Uh Aha. -huh. Uh -huh. So it's not about some uh, dramatic feeling of the image. Sometimes, uh, you know, when it's simple overcast scene, uh, you can use the filter just to increase some drama, or you can use Lightroom filter. So personally, I prefer to use uh, Lightroom filters, like simple Lightroom gradient, instead of using uh, the filter in the field. So it gives the same result for overcast image but let's say if uh, in this overcast image uh, there is some movement like movement of clouds or movement of waves obviously you need to control the shutter speed uh, to uh, make some beautiful uh, lines of waves or beautiful lines of sky so for this reason i use filters mm -hmm. okay. there is another reason for example if i'm with a group so most of uh, lo there are lots of people that are really scared of taking pictures in overcast weather. So they get used to sunrises, sunsets, and uh, they, need, they really need to learn how to make impressive picture in the bad weather. Yeah, so, as a teacher of mine once taught, and I, it's a great lesson, once you know your limitations, everything else is possible. That's, that's what you have to go in those cases. You know, the sun's not yeah. there. Here's what we got. Let's, let's use it. Let's make it work. Yeah, yeah. So some people just sit in the car and then I just come and show this image with filters and they, oh my God, I need to take the same picture and they run yeah. <laughs> to the field under the rain to make the same picture. <laughs> Can I ask, I, I don't want to get down this path too much, but does that really happen? I mean, people on a tour with you will, will just sit it out. They'll sit in the car and then... <laughs> Then they'll see what you do and they'll run out and try to copy that? <laughs> no, just, uh, of course, for most cases, people are crazy about pictures that yeah. are coming with me. So photographers, they're like kids. Yeah. So just, uh, you show them the subject, you show them uh, some toys to play with, mm -hmm. and it's impossible to get them out of the field. Yeah, I would think so. Can you speak a bit about uh, how you use Photoshop and 
and where you use Lightroom? Like, like at what point do you jump over to Photoshop and, and, and are you seeing a change in that over, over the years where you'll, you'll do more work in, in Lightroom now than you used to? Uh, is there anything that you can speak on that subject? Yeah, uh, I think Lightroom uh, developed a lot uh, past years. And uh, uh, for example, for panorama photography, First of all, I try to stitch images in Lightroom, or uh, it has also a very useful HDR feature, mm-hmm. so it allows to stitch HDR. And in most cases, it, in most cases, it works very well right now. So it helps a lot. It's quite fast and very efficient, and the result is uh, has very good quality. And but uh, still, I use Photoshop. So I use Photoshop for uh, like some precise masking mm-hmm. or some color correction. So it's uh, Lightroom is about creating, it's like a uh, painting. Yeah. So you start from some, uh, just some rough composition, some rough colors, uh, just uh, spreading colors on the canvas, but then you continue to some fine details. So Photoshop for me uh, serves to work on these fine details. We hope you're enjoying this edition of the B&H Photography Podcast. Send us a tweet at bhphotovideo, hashtag bhphotopodcast. So you, you just came back from, from a, a trip to Antarctica. Um, and can, can you speak a bit about preparing for that specifically for the, the time for you know shooting in cold weather? I mean, was there something on this trip that you learned that, that you hadn't kind of expected um, or even talk specifically about gear that, uh, that you find particularly useful. Well, I think the most complicated task here for me to organize the trip itself, Mm -hmm. because it was a quite tough expedition. It wasn't only Antarctica because, uh, uh, we started from St. Petersburg on the yacht. Okay. And first of all, we visited, uh, all Arctic regions like Svalbard, Greenland, and then on the same yacht, our crew uh, made the road uh, to Antarctica. So oh it's a like two poles expedition. Wow. Wow. So to arrange uh, this, of course, it was quite tough to just find money to arrange all these tours, to uh, get people on these tours. It's uh, a separate and very complicated task. I see. And technically speaking, when you're photographing in the cold, there's a lot of things going against you. What are some of the preparations that you do and precautions that you take? How do you prepare for that? Because cameras don't always like these environments. Well, you're correct. But uh, let's say for Antarctica, many people think that it's like really cold, frozen world. But uh, still, we even... uh, uh, swim there in Antarctica. <laughs> it was quite comfortable trip in terms of temperatures, but... Um, when you say comfortable, but, define comfortable. How cold was it? Well, uh, zero to 10 degrees Celsius sometimes. Uh, oh, swimming weather. Okay. All right. Yeah. <laughs> Simple swimming weather. <laughs> so sometimes it was snowing, but still it's... Uh, these temperatures, they're good for cameras, so it's not problem, absolutely. But uh, let's say in uh, one week, I'm going to Baker Lake to Siberia. And right now it's minus 30, minus 35 Celsius. Okay, so what do you do? If you're going out minus 30 degrees Celsius, how are you preparing? What are you doing to your equipment? What's your prep to make sure that everything is going to work when you're out there? So actually for most cameras, uh, these temperatures are fine too. The problem might be with batteries. So first of all, the batteries involved. And just uh, the main um, tip here is to heat your batteries. So just take them out, place them in some pocket. Or Personally, I have a pocket in my glove. So I place them in the glove and heat my batteries. Uh, the other problem might be with uh, frozen lenses. So let's say it's a bit is if it is a bit humid, uh, lenses might be frozen. Uh, so the, here the tip is to use uh, uh, like heater plasters, uh, like hand uh, feet heater, right. mm-hmm. like hand warmer or I don't know how yeah. you call them. The hand warmer. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. 
So you can place them just behind the cap and uh, you can defrost the lens. And I imagine you have to be very careful bringing your gear between outdoors and indoors because you, this, the equipment will start to sweat and then freeze and it could take you a half hour to get everything dried off and clean before you can go back out again. Um, oh, yeah, absolutely right. So uh, usually I bring uh, with me some plastic bag or some bag that, let's say, rafters use, some waterproof bag. So I place my entire uh, camera back there or just store my... Uh, camera bag just in uh, the luggage rack of the car so I do not bring it at all to uh, compartment right and right. do you bring uh, what do you bring out on a shoot like that do you have how many cameras do you usually bring with you and and, and how many batteries yeah <laughs> well it depends uh, well usually I have four to five batteries but uh, usually the number of batteries depends uh, on the expedition itself so Sometimes uh, we had some wild expeditions in Russia that lasts for three or four weeks, just absolutely with no socket. So there you just, uh, it's not about the battery, but about uh, how many shots you allow yourself to take. Ooh, yeah. Yeah. So in most, most cases, I do not limit myself in taking pictures. Uh, I shoot a lot, so just thousands of pictures. But the most important thing that I select them very precisely. Mm -hmm. You shoot so, selectively. Is that what you yes. Yeah, okay. So mm -hmm. I just select just a few. But uh, when I'm uh, uh, with these limitations, like let's say three months in fields with no socket around, I just shoot very precisely. So I'm not taking uh, just pictures of everything and not duplicating pictures. It's like one shot. It's and, true conservation is what you're talking about. And, and when you found that one shot that you're going to go after, can you uh, then explain your how you bracket or how you... Well, can you just explain your process at that point? Well, actually, it depends also on the situation. So, of course, I prefer uh, not to take, uh, just let's say, spare brackets. Mm -hmm. So if it doesn't, uh, the situation um, just doesn't need it, I prefer not to take uh, more shots for example, uh, at sunset, sunrises, uh, sometimes if time allow, I prefer to use uh, the same stated filters and use uh, just make the picture just in one shot. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not only about uh, like making it in one shot. It's some maybe it's not a challenge for me at all. But uh, uh, I understand that most of competitions, for example. Uh, Lots of competitions, let's say, they do not allow HDR shots, so they do not allow merging. Mm -hmm. And here at this point, it's very useful to make everything in one shot. The other thing, again, is to just uh, inspire people around. So again, I use filters, I show them the just impressive picture, and they start to work better. <laughs> mm -hmm. All right. What kind of backup do you uh, uh, do on these trips? Because I mean, you're going through a lot of time, expense, and effort to get photographs that you may not ever be able to get again. Do you back up all the stuff that you shoot at the end of the day uh, in any manner? Or what, what's your workflow in that sense? Well, yes, of course. Um, uh, when I'm in the fields and uh, it's possible to have a socket around, so I just use my laptop and external uh, hard disk drive to copy the images. Copy images. I prefer to store them in two places. So every time to store them in two places. Right. But uh, in some hard, tough expeditions, uh, when it's not possible, like in mountains, uh, I just store them in on one cart. And so far. For like 12 years of photography, I never lost an image. Shh, don't say that. Don't say that. <laughs> well, I'm not, well, I'm not scared about uh, losing images. Of course, it's like very precious, but... Uh, so far, so again, good. Life goes on. Yes, so far, so good. And uh, as I said before, the most important thing for me is the way. Mm -hmm. So do you, do you have two cards in when you shoot and one... one one is backing up the other, or do you use it for overflow, or you just have the one card? No, just one card uh, and one row file. Okay. All right, but so, I prefer to copy uh, them uh, just in the end of the day, 
Still, I prefer to copy them on external hard disk drive. Right, right. So I have uh, from your website anyway a list of the gear that you you use, and is it is it up to date? Are you still using the D eight hundred D eight ten as your primary cameras? Well, right now I use three uh, cameras, so mm-hmm. it's D eight hundred ten, D eight hundred ten A for astrophotography, right. and uh, the third one is uh, D five hundred. I use D five hundred for video. And when will you use the D five hundred compared to the other two? Well, it's uh, solo for time lapses and for filming. Okay. Because it's uh, it's quite brand new camera from Nikon, and it allows to shoot in 4K. Right. So you're doing uh, a good deal of video. Well, uh, yes. In my past projects, I just uh, use drones. I film a lot, but I still uh, need to find some time to organize it in films. Right. Like films about Greenland, Antarctica, and some polar regions about this expedition. So lots of footage, but uh, still needed to be organized. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. that's the hard part, right? <laughs> uh, John pointed out something interesting when you're looking at your equipment list. And it's all state-of-the-art modern Nikon stuff, lenses specifically, and, and cameras. But you have the 80-200 to f2.8 zoom lens, which hasn't been made in many, many years. Is that a typo or is this a lens that you just fell in love with and you're never giving up? <laughs> yeah, it's mostly about love, but uh, it's, also about, <laughs> yeah, it's uh, also about the toughness of this lens. Mm-hmm. Ah, okay. Because uh, it's a very old lens. It uh, doesn't involve any electronics and uh, usually put in, in my uh, check-in luggage. Okay. Uh-huh, so I okay. don't carry carry it on because it's quite heavy, but still, it's almost with me, and I'm forced to put it in my uh, just checked-in luggage. Mm-hmm. And I doubt that uh, the new lens uh, it will survive all these airport transfers and all these expeditions. Well, it might survive, but uh, still. <laughs> Well, I'll tell you, we have the latest version here in uh, uh, in our office, and if you invite me along, I'll take it along, and we could see how it holds up. Just out of curiosity. Okay, just make sure that uh, <laughs> this expedition will be somewhere in the middle of Russia. Okay, that works for me. My passport's valid. I'll go. <laughs> okay, okay. So, um, what lens do you always have on your camera? Let's say when you're, or, or do you carry a camera when you're walking around or going to the shop? Or not... <laughs> Well, I'm not sleeping with my lens. No. <laughs> <laughs> right. The lenses always depends on the task, of course. So if it's landscape, uh, of course, it's wide angle. It's 14-24. If it's more about some travel photography or some mid-range, uh, I prefer 24-70. You, now, you have a 14-28 and a 14-24-28, which are both amazingly wonderful lenses. I've used them both. Why would you care? I, I, now, I imagine weight and bulk is a big issue when you're traveling. Why would you carry both the 1428 and the 14 to 2428, which are both large, heavy lenses and take up a lot of space? Why not just settle for, say, the 14 to 24 or just the 14? Well, actually, in most cases, I uh, bring uh, both lenses uh, because on the second, I shoot time lapse. So I set up time lapse ah, for the okay. second. Gotcha. And originally, originally I have fourteen uh, because uh, it's lighter than fourteen twenty four. Yeah, that's a beast uh, lens, amazing lens, but it is big and heavy. It is. That's why I was asking about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I uh, usually I used it in some expeditions because uh, in most expeditions, uh, let's say in Russia, we even uh, used the cut off straps and our backpacks to save some weight. Hmm. And of course, when it comes to the lens, like 200 or 300 grams, it's uh, like gold. Oh yeah, 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 for sure, for sure. Um, tripods and heads, are you using, uh, is it safe to assume you're using carbon fiber tripods or are you still hauling around aluminum? Yeah, 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 it's a carbon fiber okay. tripod. It's yep. a Gitsi carbon fiber. I'm also a Gitsi ambassador, so they support me. Ah, okay. Tripod. Yeah, well, it doesn't get much better than Gitsa when it comes to tripods. Those things are... I've run them over with cars, and they still work fine. They're great. <laughs> so do you experiment with lenses? Do you, do you 
every now and again break out a, a, an ultra telephoto or do you put on an adapter and, and try an oddball lens or you just stick with the, the Nikon workhorse lenses? Well, as a Nikon ambassador, sometimes I take lenses because the office asks me mm -hmm. to just to drive some lenses, to test some lenses. Uh, but uh, personally, if I uh, take a huge lens for like animal photography, it's uh, 400, mm -hmm. uh, 2.8 with uh, converter. Mm -hmm. But sometimes they give me 500, 600 just uh, for tests. Okay, well, that's and it fun. must be fun to walk around in snow drifts with a 500 millimeter lens. <laughs> I imagine that's pretty exciting. Um. <laughs> so when you're shooting, when you shoot landscape as compared to when you're shooting wildlife photography, do you uh, can you do the same? Can you do that at the same time, or do you have to kind of change your mindset? Not to mention your gear, but do you can you do them both on the same outing? Well, I believe you need to concentrate on a task. Mm -hmm. So, uh, but uh, it doesn't mean, let's say, uh, for Antarctica trip that uh, we come to Antarctica and we just shoot landscape. Of yeah. course, uh, just uh, the main goal is to uh, show, show Antarctica at its best. But uh, when we plan everyday schedule, so within every day we need to uh, work on separate subjects. So if we work... Today, uh, on animals, just we need to concentrate today on animals and just work it out completely. Just full day working with uh, animal photography, looking for whales, for like, some seals, penguins. But uh, if we're working on landscape, the so sunrises, sunset, we try to find the best location, even in the daytime, we scout for best location. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's all about the task. Right, that yeah. makes sense. So let me ask you a question about uh, about well touring and leading expeditions, and as I'm sure you know, the the idea of a photographer on assignment is something that is kind of fading in the past. And uh, I, you know, you see many photographers who are earning their living from leading tours and expeditions. Is is that something that you you miss or would like to do? Kind of being an assignment photographer. Or do you, do you think you can get the, the most out of your work uh, in the mode that you're doing it now? Well, um, it's a good question. I've worked on assignment a lot. And uh, I even had uh, my own magazine here in Russia for two mm -hmm. years. Mm -hmm. work. It's, it was a bit similar to National Geographic, maybe even better. <laughs> <laughs> like the attitude, good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, personally, right now, I prefer to have some tours. So to organize tours, it's, uh, I think it's all about the freedom you feel. Because when you organize a tour, uh, you just can uh, make your own schedule and you feel like a boss. But when you're on assignment, you feel uh, like a hired person. So you hardly have a contract in most cases, and uh, you need to work out on this contract. And when you arrived home, you need to schedule processing of your images. So it's uh, like a strict timing. But here for uh, the tour, it's a uh, far more relaxed uh, schedule and you can adopt, you can just change uh, the itinerary, for example, uh, if the weather doesn't permit, so you can change something there. So you feel like a boss. It's more, it's, yes, about the freedom you feel. And do you, uh, do you edit at the end of a day? Will you ever put an image into Photoshop, let's say when you get back at the end of a day shoot, or do you always kind of wait uh, until you're finished with an expedition or a tour and you get back home and then you sit down and work on it? Well, usually I try to process the picture as soon as possible. So while the picture is hot. Right. Some people, they say that pictures are like good wine, so they need to... <laughs> but it doesn't work for me. Okay. Because they have the next expedition, the expedition after this expedition... So the picture will go some deep into archives. <laughs> yeah. Um, personally, I prefer to recall uh, what I felt in the scene. So as we talked uh, about this already, it's more about the uh, uh, just uh, the feel of landscape that I want to show. I want to uh, pass to the people around, and just if the time passes, I start to forget. This feeling. There was a nice story about this. For example, when 
I had a workshop in Iceland. Uh, there is a famous Gullfoss waterfall. And we took pictures. It was pretty cool, nice sun sunrise above the waterfall. Then we had the critic session and people uh, shown pictures from this waterfall. A half of pictures, they were like uh, flaming. So it was flaming sky with red colors. But half of other pictures, they were completely cold. Only like white and some pale pink maybe. Absolutely different approach. So when we started to realize what happened, so the pictures that uh, were in cold tones were made by people who just simply get cold. <laughs> <laughs> so they didn't dress well right. and they get cold and uh, asked me just to warm up in the car later. <laughs> but those people who were in the down jackets and dress really warm, they just shown me this amazing sunrise with colors. <laughs> yeah, that's great. That's a good story. Um, so let me jump, we're kind of wrapping up, but I wanted to ask you a bit about uh, the image that maybe is has become the, your most uh, famous uh, and how that became an Apple wallpaper. Is there a story behind that? Was it uh, an assignment or something that just they, they pulled off of your, uh, uh, off of one of your sites or your feeds? How'd that work out? Yeah, actually the story is when uh, you signed the contract for Apple, uh, you cannot tell that uh, you made this picture. So they just buy all rights and in, in contract you state that for like four years, you uh, cannot uh, claim that you made this picture. So you just really? Apple, yeah. Wow. For four years. Why? That's bizarre. Because it's Apple. And I think <laughs> <laughs> it's quite fair if uh, you remember this famous uh, Windows picture. You can't even find the offer and uh, Microsoft bought it for 300 bucks. Oh, oh. ow, that's painful. Oh. <laughs> it's oh even fair, God. but uh, yeah, for Apple. Still, I hope you uh, got at least $400 for your picture. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I will not name the price, but it uh, no, 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 it's okay. <laughs> I was just being a tease there. Um, really now what, hap what, what happens if you actually let it be known that it is your picture before that time is up? Well, yeah, of course, I told some of my friends and uh, they started spreading to other friends that I <laughs> took some picture for Apple, so they knew it. By the way, uh, we're not going to let anybody know this. This is just between us. No one else is going to hear this conversation, so don't worry about that. Okay, it's safe. Well, right now you may feel very safe because the contract time has passed. It was oh. uh, maybe 2011 or 2012. Okay. Uh, so the contract time is passed and it's not top secret right now. Mm. So I took the picture of um, Lofoten Islands and mm -hmm. at Lofoten Islands. So it's uh, uh, like it's picture with uh, sharp mountains. Okay. With some lights. Uh, uh, it's Lofoten Islands. Okay. So it's a very recognizable picture. Right. Actually, I see it everywhere. Well, Apple mm. wallpapers and all the stories, so they still use it. But again, it was just something that they they had found on on 500px or uh, your website, and and or something you had shot specifically for them. Did well, you I find them, where they found you? That's really the question. They found me. Ah, nice. Yes. Okay. They found me, and I think it was uh, some uh, like it went viral on Reddit from 500px. Some someone reposted it. Um, Reddit from 500 peaks. Actually, we're going to let you in a little bit of a secret here. John and I are responsible for that, okay? We found the picture, we sent it to Apple, and we said, please consider this, okay? <laughs> wow. And they paid us a lot of money, but they said, we can't admit this for another six years, but today the debt is up today, so we're telling you. So you could okay, thank what's us. Your, <laughs> what's, your what's your commission for the next one? <laughs> we'll talk off air. Don't worry about that. No. <laughs> okay, we'll <laughs> What is the most awe-inspiring place you have been to? Because you've been to a lot of places that most people will never see. Um, what place leaves you just in total awe? Well, um, I believe there are lots of places that left me in awe. And uh, the most exciting place is Greenland. Aha. Uh -huh. So Greenland was absolutely crazy because it hosts... Uh, Icebergs, fjords, mountains, northern lights. So everything in one place. 
When you go, when you take out your tours, is it safe to assume that you only go to places where you have already been so that you have some familiarity? Or do you take tour groups to places where we don't know what we're going to find? Well, here I try to clearly uh, separate uh, tours, expeditions, and workshops. So I created this uh, like a simple uh, definitions here. For example, in workshops, uh, travel in places I know very well. Let's say it's like Tuscany, it's uh, uh, Lofoten Islands mentioned, mm-hmm. and I know everything there. So, and I concentrate of teach on teaching people in these places. So I feel more like a teacher. Yeah. But uh, then I have tours. So in tours, uh, sometimes I travel to the same places I've been, but the schedule it's uh, more flexible. So we do not have uh, just one base. We travel from one point to another and just work as photographers, just shoulder to shoulder. And then we have expeditions. So an expedition, we just explore new places. So just clearly state people what they uh, just expect, what they need to expect from the trip. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Are you, do you think maybe in five years you'll be shooting only portraits or do you think gonna, your photography is going to take any radical changes? Well, I'd rather say that, uh, first of all, uh, for me, it's uh, a part of my life. Mm-hmm. So it's not my job. And uh, in, uh, let's say, in Russian language, we have a word that uh, uh, describes the amateur photography. Like, it literally means the uh, person who loves photography. Right. So mm-hmm. if someone asks me, do you feel like professional, I prefer to say that I, I'm the person who loves photography, so who lives photography. Mm-hmm. And if... I will lose this feelings. I will lose uh, the feel that uh, I do not enjoy photography. So it becomes more like a work for me, a job, everyday job. I prefer just to quit and to find something else. And what is that word in Russian? Uh, this word, this means uh, it's любитель. Любитель. Means люблю is to love, to love. Someone or something. <laughs> we have a new buzzword here. Um, <laughs> anyway, <laughs> Daniel Corden, pleasure speaking with you. Your work is wonderful. Uh, and we wish you much luck on future expeditions. And we look forward to seeing more of your amazing landscapes. Thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. It was lots of fun to talk with you. <laughs> Glad you enjoyed it. Well, another good show in the can. Thank you so much for joining us today. Tweet us at hashtag BHPhotoPodcast. Send us some feedback at podcast at BHPhoto. Your reviews, your comments are very important to us. They do make a difference in the show. And subscribe on iTunes. And subscribe on iTunes. Thank you very much, John. And thank you, John, for joining us today. As always, John Harris and Jason Tables, our producers. And thank you to our listeners. As always, thank you so much for tuning in. Catch you next week.